0: Welcome to the Future of Work series presented by Algonquin College's Corporate Learning Center. I'm your host, Catherine LaRue, the Chief Learning Officer of an amazing team of creative professionals that are dedicated to helping individuals and organizations thrive. In this series, we're sharing some fantastic insights to help you optimize both yourself and your organization for the future of work. Hello, everybody. I'm thrilled today to be here with Sunil Johal. Um, He's got some great information to impart to us. Um, We've had some great conversations earlier today. Um, Sunil leads a team of 50 professionals as the director of growth services for the city of Toronto, Um, obviously a a big mandate. Um, Prior to that, from 2012 until 2019, he was policy director at the University of Toronto's Mowat Centre. And in February 19, he was appointed by the federal government to chair an expert panel on modern labor standards. So, uh, in this curious time that we're in, things are shifting. It's always been said, actually, Winston Churchill said, uh, "Never waste a good crisis." And I think pivoting in the time of crisis is something that uh, is actually sometimes a little bit easier. But uh, I'm going to throw it over to Sunil and and just give us some top line thoughts of where you think the labor market is changing, how quickly it's changing, and uh, and then we'll get into what can we do about
1: it. Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me uh, on the podcast, Catherine. I, I mean, I think labor markets are always changing, but what we're, what we're seeing now in the midst of COVID is the potential for a lot of longer-term trends in the labor market and economy to really be accelerated. So, I mean, a couple of the things specifically that come immediately to mind. One is the an increase in forms of precarious and non-standard work. And this has been happening for probably 30 plus years in Canada. Roughly a third of Canadians work in what we would call precarious forms of employment. So they're in temporary jobs, contract, part-time, working numerous gigs. Um, And what we can expect, I think, kind of coming out of the pandemic, which hopefully happens this summer or the spring once we get the vaccines up and up and running is that a lot of firms are still going to be in a bit of an uncertain state especially in sectors like retail, hospitality, tourism, much of the service industry for that matter. So I think what you can expect for at least the short to medium term is a lot of companies or when they hire people back or when they start looking to hire people aren't probably going to immediately say let's offer this person a permanent full-time Job, instead, we'll, we'll give you a part time gig or we'll give you a contract that might last for three or six months. So I think that will likely introduce even more instability into the labor market. Uh, and that has a whole host of associated challenges as well. Because a lot of our social supports are premised on the idea that you're in a full time job, you're accumulating enough hours to be eligible for EI, for example, that you're in or out of work. I mean, a lot of people now, if you've got a couple part time jobs and you lose one of them, well, Technically, you're still employed, but you don't have the amount of money that you need to really make ends meet. So that's one issue that's certainly of concern. I think another issue that COVID has really brought to the fore in the labor market is the the real significant disproportionate impacts the pandemic has had on different parts of the population and different parts of our labor market. So whether it's women whose labor market participation rates are at 38-year lows, people from racialized backgrounds, people from indigenous communities, largely because of the types of jobs that they were engaged in. So again, like service types of employment in areas like hospitality, retail, tourism, they've been hit really hard by the pandemic. And there's a real question about how they and young people who are entering the labor market for the first time are going to recover from this. So I think it will be interesting for all, all governments, for the private sector, for nonprofits, academics, um, to think about how can we start addressing some of those impacts in a way that generates a more inclusive recovery than maybe we, we fear might actually not materialize.
0: Right, and, and, and of course, it's also addressing the actual skills gap because there are many, You know, we have lots of jobs without people and we have lots of people without jobs. And so the shift because of the pandemic, they say, is going to be unevenly impacting some sectors where the demand in other sectors is going to continue to increase. And, you know, we're at at the college, of course, we're very invested in training and professional development. Where do you see that going? And how do we ensure that we're able to train up the, you know, the people who are without jobs to fill those skills gaps?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a great question because as you've suggested there are going to be some sectors which it might take quite a while for them to recover if they ever do fully um, recover and there are going to be other sectors especially in the tech industry logistics warehousing which are probably going to see uh, continued significant growth so how do we take somebody who maybe was a waitress or a bartender and their job may not come back in the same way or in with the same amount of hours even six months from now or 12 months from now and, and pivot them into a new career opportunity that help that helps them thrive and uh, engage in uh, meaningful work. So, I mean, the first obvious answer to that is this has to be employer-led. Um, we have to know where the jobs are and we have to know what kind of skills people are looking for when they're hiring people. So, if we know that certain parts of the tech industry are going to be looking for a lot of people in the coming months and years how do we take somebody who was in a in a more traditional industry let's call it and get them upskilled or reskilled for that opportunity and it's not just a matter of identifying the person and the job it's also identifying what types of skills training do they need how do we make sure that's delivered in an effective way how do we make sure it's delivering the outcomes that we want And how do we make sure it's sustainable and and affordable and not something that we're spending unrealistic amounts of money for at a time when uh, governments are going to be scaling back on investments in a whole range of areas because of the unprecedented uh, fiscal stimulus that's been coming out over the past six to 12 uh, months. So we're likely going to be entering a period of fiscal restraint, and that's where it's going to be really tough to make the case for new investments in areas like skills training, which will probably were a little bit overlooked in the past six to 10 months because we've been so focused on, rightfully so, public health measures and direct economic stimulus and the CERB and business supports. But uh, the skills training question has taken a little bit of a backseat. I mean, there have been some, some announcements recently from the federal government, and I think a little more focus is going in that area. But that's really the big medium-term and short-term challenge is how do we take people whose occupations have kind of, evaporated or shrunk significantly and, and pivot them into these new opportunities. And it's going to it's going to require all of those things, employer-led, outcomes-driven, uh, digital means of delivery, integrated approaches across sectors so that colleges are working closely with employers and third-party service providers and universities and uh, provincial governments, municipal governments, the federal government. I mean, uh, we need all, all players at the table here. And I mean, the challenge historically has been this is a pretty – diffuse space with not a lot of coordination and that's i think a big part of the reason um, skills training programs by and large in canada haven't been probably as successful as we would have hoped uh, Mm
0: -hmm. they
1: could have been and now's the opportunity really to to double down and make sure that with those scarce public dollars and private dollars that are going to be put on the table that we're really getting the most bang for the bucket of uh, those investments
0: i I agree Sunil, and we're actually involved in uh, a consortium of colleges in Eastern Ontario, the Eastern Ontario College Consortium, which was pulled together to deliver training based in the steel and aluminum manufacturing sector, as a response to the tariffs that were established uh, in the U.S. a couple of years ago, and we are seeing good, strong support from the province. I must say they've been, you know, very forthcoming, very helpful, and they're talking about looking at that kind of an approach. Is that um, so? You're talking about a consortium that would not just necessarily be. Training colleges, but colleges, employers, government, etc.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think these are issues that require lots of different stakeholders from lots of different parts of the economy and parts of society at the table. And most of the approaches we've seen in other countries that have worked successfully, and in Canada for that matter, have been approaches that integrate those cross-sectoral um, perspectives into a, into an integrated approach. But yeah, I mean, it it has to be done locally, right? I mean, we can talk kind of at a high level about well, jobs and hospitality may not be in high demand in the next 12 or 18 months. And we know we have a lot of tech jobs. But what does that mean in a specific community for specific employers and for specific workers? Because I mean, that's really where the rubber meets the road. And we need to make sure that a specific company is getting somebody with the right skills to fill fill the need that they have. And that specific person is getting that training in a way that's affordable or cost-effective for them and delivering benefit to them. And and, and ultimately it does work in everybody's benefit, but the challenge is I think getting people to step outside, maybe their traditional ways of doing things and kind of saying, okay, well, this isn't really kind of a, an empire building Initiative or anything—it's like we just have to kind of roll up our sleeves and and drive towards what is in everybody's benefit, which is getting the right people, uh, the right training at the right time for the right jobs. And if we do that, I mean, that's going to benefit the service providers, the universities, the colleges. It's obviously going to benefit the worker. It also benefits the government. I mean, that's the th- piece that I think is often overlooked—that people focus on the costs of the training, but the long-term benefits of getting somebody a higher-paying job or a more meaningful career will pay off many fold in terms of income tax revenue, less reliance on other forms of social support, people who are healthier and are not relying on certain parts of the healthcare system as much. I mean, there's a huge payoff to getting people meaningful, decent work. And if that means investments of five, ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars for somebody upfront, that'll pay itself off many times over, but it might take five or 10 years to see that investment. And obviously, the challenge is for a lot of governments that they're focused on the short-term balancing of the books, and they're not going to reap the benefits of uh, that enhanced revenue 10 years down the road, another political party, another government will be in power. But we really need to kind of depoliticize these types of investments and just view them as really just smart for Smart for the country, smart for the province, smart for local communities.
0: Absolutely. And, you know, one of the challenges we find, I, I think I think we've seen some very good um, indication from the provincial government and from the federal government that they're willing to invest in training, upskilling both the training for job seekers who are looking to move to a, a new job and upskilling for people who are in job, incumbent workers who need upskilling. One of the challenges we come across, even if the training is funded, is that the employer's basically say, well, I've got to free up this person who works for me now for X period of time in order to upskill them. I can't do that. So it's it's convincing employers that the investment is, is is a good one as well. And I'm wondering if you can, you shared with us a couple of examples of people who are getting it right. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Sure. Yeah. And I mean, that is a big challenge, especially for small and medium enterprise. I mean, if you've only got 10 or 12 employees, I mean, it's hard to say we're going to take somebody who's really critical to operations and send them on a training course for three weeks or maybe one day a week for the next six months when you really need that person to kind of keep your your business up and running. And if, if you're a 12-person business, I mean, it's not like you can just kind of borrow somebody from a different department and slot them in. I mean, you, everybody's kind of focused on on their task and you don't have a lot of kind of backfill capacity or overlap, so I think getting employers to the table and understanding the benefits of these types of investments. Um, and again, usually that's probably going to mean giving somebody a little bit of time off or recognizing that they're doing some of this training in their in their spare time, and maybe you compensate them for that or give them a little bit of loo time or, or whatnot. Uh, but yeah, I mean, there are other, a lot of other countries are doing interesting things in this area. I mean, I think the one example I always like to point to is, is Denmark has a program called the Flex Security Um, also, it's a combination of both flexible and secure investments in the labor market. So the three big prongs of that program are, number one, it's actually very easy to hire and fire people in Denmark. So roughly a quarter of uh, Danes switch jobs in the private sector every single year, which sounds like a lot, but what it really accomplishes is that it means that companies If they don't need a particular type of skill set anymore, it's not difficult for them to to move that person on with the knowledge that they're not kind of putting this person on the sidelines of the labor market. Because what will happen is the government is willing to step in and provide people with very high levels of income support for a long period of time. So up to two years, up to 90% of your income, depending on what level you're at. And in that time period, you're not just kind of sitting at home searching job ads, you're actually being provided with very high quality skills training programs. And that's the third plank of the the Flex security model is that they invest very heavily in skills training. They know what works, they deploy uh, resources into programs and initiatives that work. And if something's not working and they're evaluating that they either terminate it or amend it so that it is more um, effective, and they spend roughly three percent of gross domestic product, which is a lot, on these types of initiatives every year. Whereas by comparison, Canada spends under zero point eight percent of GDP uh, on these types of active labor market supports. So roughly, almost four times as uh, four times as much of their economy is kind of allocated to these types of. Investments, and I think that's that's the kind of model I think we need to look at. And in some ways, we're a little we're kind of halfway there now with what's happened with COVID, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, changes to the EI program. We're a lot further ahead on the income support side of things. Uh, Now it's just a question of that third element, which is how do we invest in the skills training piece? And countries like Switzerland do really interesting things around apprenticeships. Colorado's really just recently down in the United States introduced a Swiss apprenticeship model for uh, 10 different career pathways. They pay young people for up to three years to get certifications in specific industries. We know that we have a lot of challenges with our apprenticeship system here in Canada. Uh, a lot of people drop out early, I think it roughly 50%, depending on what type of program you're talking about. A lot of these programs in the skilled trades and construction tend not to be super representative of the population in terms of the number of women who are engaged in these programs, visible minorities. So I think we can learn a lot from, from other initiatives around the world, which demonstrate that when you've got employers at the table, when you're evaluating what works rigorously, uh, and when you're investing adequately in these programs, you're, you're likely to get success. And again, those investments will pay uh, for themselves over time.
0: Wonderful. Uh, I'd like to ask you um, uh, one last thing, some advice for people who are listening to the podcast, organizations, employers, even individuals. We all want to come out the end of this pandemic stronger than we were when we went in. What would you recommend that organizations can do to make that happen?
1: Yeah, I mean, great question. I mean, I think by and large, we have to recognize we can't do this alone. I mean, every organization out there, whether it's private sector, public sector, um, really needs to start having more conversations. I mean, some people obviously are doing this and this is kind of preaching to the choir, but if you're not, uh, one thing you can do is uh, reach out to others in your community, in your sector, uh, and make some connections. Like there are a lot of people out there who are willing to help and engage in partnerships on new initiatives, whether it's around skills training or other labor market types of initiatives. And I think everybody wants to to progress our systems and, and get us to a better place so we do build back better, uh, but we can't do that alone. So I mean, where does that start? It starts with making those kind of personal connections, getting to know new people who may not obviously and apparently have something to offer you or to kind of engage with you on, but sometimes those are the best types of connections to make. And that's obviously doubly challenging now when it's challenging to meet in person, everything's kind of being done online or via um, telephone. But to the extent you can maybe make a commitment to make two or three new connections a month, explain what your organization does, uh, understand what their organization does, and then even like kind of make mutual connections for them. Like if you know somebody else in your community who might be able to help them with a particular problem or issue um, they're having, that's really kind of, I think, the the best way forward. I mean, we can look to governments to do some of this, but at, at, at a certain time as well, more of that grassroots kind of natural evolution of sharing of information, joint problem solving is really critical too. And I think it's something that we've got a little bit of space hopefully to do now when uh, you're not commuting into the office and you've got, maybe, maybe you can fit in like a 20 minute networking call with somebody when you otherwise would have been driving into work. But I think that would be the one thing I would suggest.
0: And, and great advice. And I'll put in one shameless plug for the college system, reach out to your local college. Uh, many of them have um, uh, employment um, programs running and um, always looking for industry partners. So Sunil, thank you so much. This has been um, very informative and uh, more to come. So uh, thank you for joining us today and giving us your time. Great. Thanks, Catherine. Well, that's it for this episode of the Future of Work series. Let's keep the conversation going. So follow us on social media and learn about our events at futureofworkseries.ca. I'm Catherine LaRue. Thanks for joining us.